Welcome back to Momentum HSS, a podcast exploring the diverse present and future trends across the humanities and social sciences. I am Darby Orcutt, librarian, teaching faculty and researcher at NC State University, and adjunct faculty at the School of Information and Library Science at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. While I have been coordinating and leading the NC State University Library's subject support for the humanities and social sciences for nearly 20 years, I bring a lifelong learning approach to my work and to my conversations on this podcast, where my amazing guests include associational leaders, funders, scholars with deep background in the themes we're discussing, and academics at all ranks and levels of their careers. With this podcast, you have opportunity to eavesdrop on some intimate conversations like today's about what it is truly like to be a humanities or social sciences scholar and the frankly expressed needs, joys, and pressures of which we who support these scholars should be aware. Please feel free to listen to episodes in any order that makes sense to you. And as you feel moved, I hope you'll reach out via Twitter at Darby underscore librarian, or more privately via email at dcorcut at ncsu.edu. Above all, I hope you'll be as I am, inspired, encouraged, challenged, and changed by what you're about to hear. Today, I welcome Dr. Shaley Patel, who currently serves as Assistant Professor of Early Christianity at Virginia Tech. She is an historian of early Christianity who studies ancient magic, Greco-Roman religions, and how Christians fashion their identity by negotiating two opposing cultural trends, the charismatic allure of the magician figure and the simultaneous vilification of that same figure in Roman literature of the period. Magic made Christianity in a lot of ways, and Shaley likes to think about all the different ways identities are constructed in the ancient world. She earned an MA from the University of Chicago and MTS from Vanderbilt Divinity School, and her PhD at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Well, thank you so much for being here this evening. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'd like to start out asking you, what was it that put you on the path to being an academic, as opposed to any (laughs) of the countless other things you might have done in life? Um, So I, I, I went into college thinking I wanted to be a medical doctor. And then I took biology and decided that that was not for me, right? Um, and then so I decided, you know, um, I, I have this, I had this interest in political science. I'd always liked it. And so I, I became a poli sci major and I thought, well, what can you do with a poli sci major? And I thought, you know, I'll go to law school. Because for me, um, I, you know, the idea of what you could do with your degree was so narrow that I hadn't really thought beyond doctor, lawyer, that sort of thing. Wake Forest University, at the time that I went there, like back in like the Pleistocene era, um, they had a requirement that you had to take either two religion courses and a philosophy course or two philosophy courses and a religion course. And I ended up taking a course on Jesus and the Gospels with Mary Foskett, who still teaches there, and she is phenomenal. And I loved it. Like, I just loved it. I thought this was the coolest thing ever. Um, And I wanted to read more, and I wanted to learn more. So I ended up taking a double major in religion. And, uh, you know, my focus became early Christianity. And so when it was time to graduate, 
I did in fact apply to law school and I got into law school and, you know, on the sort of eve of paying my seed deposit, I just felt like it wasn't for me. And so thankfully I, I decided not to go to law school and I took the year to sort of pull together graduate school applications for religious studies because I felt like this is something that I was excited about. It would be more than just a job. And so um, that's, that's how the path started. So I didn't know in undergraduate where I would be, you know, 20 years in the future. Did you have an idea when you started graduate school? Eve? Graduate school, um, you know, I was, I was, I don't know if it was ambition or recklessness, but I started graduate school wanting very much to do what I'm doing now. That is, I wanted to be an academic. Um, I wanted to be a professor. I saw my other professors in early Christianity, and I thought, you know what? I would love to do that for a living. Um, so that's how I started graduate school. And, uh, you know, graduate school changes you. And so by the time I got out of graduate school, I was, in fact, um, a more reluctant academic. But yeah, I did. When I started graduate school, this is what I wanted to do. What about the the day-to-day -day work of, of being a university faculty member differs the most from your early expectations? There is a lot of administrative stuff. And this is something that graduate school doesn't, you know, train you for, right? Uh, there's a lot of administrative stuff. So there is, you know, there's committee work and then there's, um, you know, mentoring stuff. You do some of that if you teach as a graduate student, which I did. Um, but, you know, you do a lot more of that if you're the primary faculty person for a class, right? So, and particularly when you teach what I do, courses like Introduction to New Testament, um, early Christianity classes, students who have grown up in particular Christian traditions uh, may want to come talk to you, right? Because the material that you're teaching is um, is either difficult for them or, you know, they're really fascinated by it um, or they're wrestling with it in some sort mm -hmm. of way. And so you become the point person for that. And, and so there was a lot more of that than I was used to in graduate school. The assessments, like, you know, you're assessed in graduate school, don't get me wrong. Um, but the kind of assessment that you go through as, um, as faculty member as as a faculty member was was kind of strange to me you know we actually get what in my mind sort of approximates a grade card um so you're scored on your teaching research and service you're scored on those those metrics right and you get a little mm -hmm. report back every year and so the sort of rigidness of the assist of the assessment process was new and unnerving at first. Um, so there are a lot of things that graduate school didn't really prepare me for, and that I sort of learned just by doing, you know. Now, at this stage in your career, you're, you're an assistant professor, first rank towards tenure. What sorts of pressures do you feel in that particular rank and role? I am constantly thinking about um, what I need to do to be tenured, right? Um, what projects I need to get out for, for my tenure dossier, the most important thing will be 
a monograph. Um, so, you know, I've been revising that and, and sort of wanting to get that out. So I'm, I'm constantly thinking about writing and I am constantly thinking about what am I producing? So there's, there's this incredible pressure and I think it manifests in different ways. Um, and we manage it in different ways, right? Like, so I'm, I'm kind of one of these people that's like, a micromanager. So I will actually make calendars and block off time, really make <laughs> lists where I'm like, this project needs to be out by this month, or like, this is the list of projects that I'm working on, right? Um, so that I don't know why that's therapeutic to me. It is, I imagine it's anxiety inducing for a lot of people to be that way. Um, but that's helpful to me. So I do that, you know, I try to structure my time and I try to organize my projects. And of course, what happens is, you know, you're going to miss all your own deadlines because you will have an idea of how long something will take and inevitably it's going to take longer. And so um, you do have to learn to give yourself a little bit of grace in that way. Yeah. So I do. I do feel like, you know, like I should always be producing. And um, I don't I don't know that that comes entirely from my institution. Right. Like you know, we have a very humane tenure process at Virginia Tech. So I think this is, this is the conditioning of grad school, right? You just have mm -hmm. to be working all the time. It, you manage it in different ways. Sometimes you feel it in different ways, right? I know if I'm not working, I do tend to feel guilty. Um, I think this is pretty standard across academics. Like we, we tend to feel guilty if we're not writing or if we're not producing. And so yeah, there's there is a lot of pressure in that way. Yeah. What are the what are the concerns that are always competing with the monograph, with the writing? Right. Um, so our tenure case is not based on a monograph alone. Um, you know, one of the things you have to prove is that uh, you are a scholar of some note, and so that is one of the things that is always competing with writing um, the monograph or writing articles, you know, uh, is how do I, how do I make a name for myself or how do I get people to, to read my work? Um, you know, who are, who are the senior scholars that, that I want to approach and say, Hey, you know, will you give me a hearing or Hey, you know, can we talk about, can we talk shop for, for a while or something like that? So that's something that I'm always sort of thinking about as well is, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily enough just to publish, right? You want people to know who you are. Um, if, if you're thinking about your tenure dossier. So. What's the most difficult part of balancing your academic life and your other life needs, goals, and desires? You know, I, I don't know how to answer that. And I'll be honest with you. And I think it's because I don't have, a good balance, right? Um, I tend to work a lot. Um, again, I think for me, it becomes a kind of emotional thing where if I'm not working, I feel guilty. So rather than experience that guilt, um, I will, I will just work because that, you know, that feels better than being like, man, Shaylee, you really should have done something today. Um, so I don't know that I've, I've really struck a healthy balance. And I definitely wouldn't 
advise anyone else to adopt the same sort of mentality that I have in terms of striking a work-life balance. This is something that I, you know, I still struggle with. This is something that I'm trying to figure out. One of the difficulties of working in a rural area and being a woman of color is that I, I have a hard time forming um, sort of kinship communities, right? So it took me, I mean, really just now, I'm feeling like I actually have a community at at Virginia Tech or in, in Blacksburg. And so for for the first two years, I just really had a hard time putting down roots, I guess, um, and building a community and building a network of friends and, and having a life that was not tied to the university and was not tied to work. What, what sorts of helps do you think universities or folks there could potentially better provide to support you in that? Um, you know, they do try to do like meet and greets for, for different demographics, you know, in the beginning of the semester, when we have all this, all the new faculty coming in, they try to introduce us to one another. Um, I, you know, I'm not sure because if they were to do something like programming throughout the year, given the time demands on, on faculty and giving, given the fact that we need to, or that, you know, I personally had to really work hard to acclimate myself to the demands of my time. Would I even go to that kind of programming? Um, I'm not sure, right? The, the community that I've built now has sort of developed organically, um, you know, through incidental meetings or through introductions through circumstances that have happened in life where people become closer because of something that happened, right. Or because of experiences that they share. So I'm not, I'm not sure, um, how, you know, my institution could facilitate these, these, a stronger or a, you know, a more opportunities to form kinship community. Yeah. I really don't know what that would look like. What's most rewarding to you? about your work. You you paint a picture of working all the time, feeling guilt when you're not working, having a, a difficult time balancing things. Why do it? What's what's rewarding to you? Because if I didn't get paid to read and write about the things that I read and write about, I would still read and write about things that I read and write about. <laughs> and I think, you know, most people don't get to say that about their jobs, right? Like, I th I think, or maybe this is all in my head, I'm just making it up. I think most people like sort of work and sort of slog through their work as a kind of like, okay, this is what I have to do to survive sort of thing. But there are parts of my job that I really, really enjoy. And I, I really enjoy, you know, the research. And I really, really enjoy talking to other people about their research. Like that is, and this is how nerdy I am, right? Like, so you're asking me about work-life balance. No, this is where I have a lot of fun is when I'm talking to other people about what they're working on or what they're interested in and or their their newest project. And that sounds like such an academic cop-out. But <laughs> really, I am so socially awkward that like talking about work is how I socialize. It's weird. Um, but it is something that I enjoy. And of course, you know, I, I love students. 
there is not a lot of hope in the world right now. Um, but students make me hopeful, right? Because they're pretty awesome. I mean, my students are pretty awesome. So there, there are parts of this job that I just, I really, really love. Um, but you do, it's, it's hard and you do work all the time. And I think graduate programs and academia in general conditions graduate students to, to feel guilty if they're not working all the time. And, um, that's a sort of conditioning. I haven't learned how to shed that yet. So I'm still working on that. I want to shift gears just a little bit, if we might. Um, mm -hmm. Years ago, as a graduate student, uh, one of the things that you did, you received special funding to co-create and team teach an interdisciplinary course. Ah, yeah. Yeah, that was awesome. How, how's that experience impacted your interest and in, in your thinking about interdisciplinarity? Um, so one of the things that we learned sort of trial by error in terms of teaching that class is that it seemed easier to um, to sort of classify the different methodologies that we were using and sort of adopt a more multidisciplinary approach, right? So, you know, we did a section on um, economic theory and economic approaches to something like, you know, religious choice, right? Like rational choice models for religion. Uh, you know, we did sociological understandings, we did anthropological understandings. And so we broke it up um, by discipline. And I don't, I don't know that I'm too keen on these sort of disciplinary silos these days, but it was an easier way to, to chunk up the material because we are talking about first year students. Um, so that class was exclusively for first year students. And we thought that that was an easier way to deliver the material. So that's, that's, I'm sorry, I forgot your question <laughs> about, I think you were asking me about how we sort of conceived of interdisciplinarity in that class. Um, well, I'm, I'm also curious on, you, you mentioned just a second ago that, you know, you weren't real keen on the disciplinary approach at, what have you brought forward from that experience into your present in terms of your teaching? I think the number one thing that I took away from that class as an instructor was that I should be fearless in assigning really, really challenging reading. Hmm. So um, we gave them, you know, hard hitting theory. And these are first year students straight out of high school. So we gave them really hard hitting theory, right? Like we gave them Durkheim, we gave them Foucault, we gave them, you know, we gave them this piece by Jean and John Komarov called Occult Economies. It's a fantastic article, but it's also a pretty challenging article. Um, we just gave it to them. And the reason that it worked in that class is because we were very, very clear that we were not expecting mastery that we were expecting engagement, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we yeah. were very, very clear that, you know, graduate students struggle with these texts. You know, professors sometimes struggle with these texts. People have written entire dissertations and not figured them out. And so, you know, once you're clear about your expectations and you can say, I don't expect you to know it all, but what I want is for you to use this to think with. That I've taken 
and I've brought it into almost every class that I teach, right? So I, I will assign, you know, scholarly monographs, I'll assign journal articles, and I'll say, hey, this is hard. It is okay if it's hard. It's fine. We don't have to know it all. But we're going to use this to think about this concept that we're working on this term. Do you bring interdisciplinary approaches into your courses now, or or do you find that you're in your in your current rank here in the classes that you, you know, maybe have to teach? You're you're kind of limited in your ability to do that. Um, no, I will say so. There are a few things in terms of my job. I really lucked out. Uh, one is that we are actually a department of religion and culture. And so, you know, we're we're very serious and very committed to to having this sort of robust cultural studies arm of the department. And um, so we are incredibly interdisciplinary. And as you know, religion itself does not have an endemic methodology. So, you know, we have historians in the department who are working next to musicologists who are working next to art historians. And um, what that allows us to do is we have a lot of freedom in the curriculum that we teach. So I have never felt any pressure to sort of stay in my disciplinary lane, right? Like um, I do teach classes that um, that are sort of bread and butter classes for early Christianity specialists. So I do teach Introduction to the New Testament. Um, you know, I teach a class on on Christian Apocrypha. Um, I teach a class on orthodoxy and heresy. These are all sort of standards in early Christianity. But I also, you know, last semester I taught a class on demonology and exorcism, and it was not an ancient world class. We looked at stuff in the ancient world, but, you know, we traced a trajectory of Western demonology up until 2020, right? And so we ended up talking about things like Anton LaVey or, you know, the, the Satanic Temple and how they sort of self-define as Satanists and what do, what work does that concept do um, in in the modern world? And so I don't know that I guess I I think that I have never had to think about what methodologies I need to approach a particular class or, you know, how do I do this interdisciplinarily? if that's a word. And I think that's actually a good thing, right? Because what it allows me to do is say, okay, here are the readings that are going to be really, really useful for thinking through this particular concept, or here are the things that are going to be fruitful for students to use when we work on something else, right? And so I don't necessarily stop and think about, am I integrating, you know, is interdisciplinarity into my course structure, right? I just I try to to build a course structure that is wide ranging enough to where students can take what they learn in class. And even if they forget all the content or all the details of the content, I want them to be able to take like the methodological concepts that we cover and apply them to other things right outside of class. So if they can do that, then that for me, that class is a success. Hmm. Very nice. So I also saw that uh, you and colleagues from the Department of Religion and Culture there at Virginia Tech recently hosted a virtual teach-in on anti-Black state violence. Mm -hmm. How do you see the role of a humanities scholar in speaking to issues of social justice? 
I mean, I think, you know, I think the role of a humanities scholar is, is critical in speaking to issues of social justice. I think the thing that humanities scholars are really, really good at is imagining possibilities and teaching others to imagine possibilities. And, you know, to speak to, to issues of social justice, right, whether that be, you know, racism, sexism, et cetera. Um, one of the things that I really appreciate about my colleagues here and, and just humanity scholars in particular is that they teach us how to imagine better worlds. And so that's where I think that we really shine, right, is, is not only can we expose, um, you know, the, the injustices, and not only can we teach our students or or teach the public to sort of critically interrogate their own paradigms of meaning making and critically interrogate the dominant narratives that we tell about ourselves, let's say in America, right, in 2020. Um, but we can also teach our students and, and, and the wider public to imagine alternatives to those really, really damaging narratives, right? Um, so I'm really thankful for that. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to to even be able to engage on that level, because I think that's really meaningful. As a humanist, what does public engagement mean to you in terms of that balance between scholarship and engagement? How, should, how do you think that should be struck? Um, I don't know that. I don't know that. Hmm. I think the honest, honest answer is that I don't know that I would categorize those two things as being distinct. Mm -hmm. I know that the academy tends to, you know, say a monograph is scholarship, whereas something like an op-ed or an explainer is is public scholarship, right? Or engagement. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I don't know that that I want to make a distinction between those two things. So I don't know that there's a balance to be struck um, in that I do think that the role of the humanities scholar is to be out there and is to critique our, our modes of meaning making and our narratives that we tell about ourselves. And, and the role of the humanities scholar is to teach us to, to imagine better alternatives to what we have. And so if we can't turn that outwards, I frankly don't know what I'm doing, right? I don't know why I'm in the game. If, if I can't take what I do and all the skills that I learned and, you know, everything that I spent so long in grad school trying to sort of, you know, I won't say perfect because that's not, it's not where I'm at, but, um, you know, all the things that I tried to learn in grad school, if I can't take those things and turn them outward, I honestly feel like I need to find another job because there's so many really awesome humanity scholars who can turn their work outward and who do do this really meaningful, engaging, critical work. Um, so for me, the two are not distinct. And I, I sort of, you know, bristle uh, when, when people posit them as distinct or, or when universities, you know, insist that they're distinct for like tenure and promotion purposes, right? No, engagement is scholarship. 
Returning to those issues of, of equity and inclusion and maybe turning the lens back around on the academy. Um, oh, what do boy. You, yeah, you see where I'm at. <laughs> How do you think humanities disciplines or institutions are faring right now in, in that through that lens? You mean faring right now in terms of what are the, what are the what are the pressing issues around equity and inclusion? Oh, in around terms? equity and inclusion. Um, I think you know. I think we need to do you know what. People have been saying that we need to do. I think we need to look very critically at our hiring procedures. We need to look very critically at who makes up our search committees and, you know, whether or not they have a diverse representation um, of people from, uh, you know, all over the spectrum, you know, whether that be uh, race, ethnicity, gender identity, you know, sex, whether it be, you know, what rank you are. So we need to think about who's sitting on our search committees. We need to think about how we can advertise jobs to, to you know, a more diverse population. Um, I also would like universities to be more serious about retention, right? And for me, what really sits at the heart of retention is you know, tenure and promotion procedures. I mean, so for example, um, you know, when we look at something like student evaluations, well, we know those things are, are racist and sexist. Like we, the, the research has been out there for a very, very long time. Um, but universities still use them to make, um, you know, tenure and promotion decisions. And that to me is deeply problematic. We also know that there is gatekeeping that goes on. And so scholars of color, particularly black scholars, Hispanic scholars, right? Like um, we know that they, they are subject to this kind of gatekeeping and we haven't figured out how to integrate that into, into something like tenure and promotion, right? Um, so I think there's a lot that universities could be doing. I think, you can hire more faculty of color. You can hire more women. You can hire more LGBTQ faculty, right? You can do that. Um, but you also want to make sure that you're creating a fair and equitable workplace when they get there. And so you really do need to revisit something like tenure promotion guidelines. You want to make sure that, you know, your colleagues are not dealing with 2000 microaggressions every single day. And, you know, you want to make sure that, you know, if, if you have a colleague of color, you know, who comes to you and says, Hey, this is a problem. Like you need to make sure that the leadership in your university is going to take that concern very, very seriously. Um, so there's a lot that we could be doing universities in general. Right. Um, and so I would like to see us move in that direction. I, you know, one of the things that really upset me is when COVID hit, um, when, and you would see like these layoffs at, at some of these universities, it seemed to me like they started with the programs that were dedicated to, to equity. So they would start with things like women and gender studies and they start with African-American studies, right? Like, 
Um, and that was devastating to me because these are the same universities that are going to put up like big splashy diversity pages as mm -hmm. a kind of recruiting effort for undergraduates, right? Like, so like, you know, you have to, you have to sort of, you know, if you, if you care about equity, you care about equity, right? Um, so yeah, that was really disappointing to me. And I think we have a really long way to go. Um, I think you know, we're going to see, I hope, gosh, I hope, I really hope that we're going to see changes as more, you know, scholars of color enter the academy. I have to hope that. Because again, like, if I can't hope that, like, if that's not, if the academy is not going to change, then I really need to start finding, looking for a new job. Let's say you controlled the 10-year promotion reward process. What are the things you do differently? What are the sorts of activities you'd want to see in Cinebot? Um, yeah, I don't have all the answers, unfortunately. Yeah, I wish I did. <laughs> um, I don't have all the answers. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, the higher ups, whoever they are, I think they should be reading the literature on things like student evaluations. I think they should be reading the literature on um academic gatekeeping. I think they should be reading the literature on publishing disparities. And, you know, I think they should have very serious conversations about how they're going to integrate that into their tenure and promotion guidelines. So I don't know what that would look like. I imagine it would be different um, in disciplines. Um, and I think it would be different based on university, depending on what sort of university we're talking about. I will say this, though, the one thing that I would do that I feel like I would be very sure in doing is I would not count student evaluations towards tenure and promotion. Um, mm -hmm. I just, that I don't understand why we do it. But apart from that, like, I think that universities sort of need to think about how to make their guidelines more flexible in a way. So in some ways we do see a little, at least I can speak, from personal experience just at Virginia Tech, there is some flexibility built into our TMP guidelines in terms of, you know, this field, it's it's common to write journal articles. So the TP, TMP guidelines are based on journal articles or in my field, it's common to write a monograph. And so, you know, the expectation is that you write a monograph. And so there is that sort of flexibility. And I think that's pretty common across uh, research universities is that the TMP guidelines are based on, you know, what productivity in the field looks like. But I haven't heard very many um, TMP guidelines at universities that really take into account the different pressures that, you know, your faculty face, right? So not just things like student evaluations, not just like things like academic gatekeeping, but also the fact that like, you know, women of color in particular are going to be asked to to spend a lot more time with students like a lot more one-on-one -on -one time with students um women of color are often asked to disproportionately to spend time serving on committees um we know that there are also there's also this sort of coming to women of color you know within the department to sort of you know be your therapist right like um, and I, I, I can speak to personal experience or from personal experience on that front, right? So like, I will say that personally, you know, my department tries to go out of their way to protect my time, but that is not always the case for, mm -hmm. for people 
um, who are pre-tenure. And certainly I have colleagues at, at other institutions where that has not, in fact, been the case. And so I think one of the things that, you know, uh, TMP committees really need to think about is, you know, how are we protecting pre-tenure faculty time? You know, what are the barriers to to publishing or to being, you know, I told you earlier in the conversation that one of our sort of tenure requirements is that I should be of some note. Um, <laughs> I'm not entirely clear on what that means, um, but there are barriers to, you know, to me becoming someone of some note sometime. Right. And so you know, we should, we should take those things into account. Unfortunately, I don't know what that looks like, you know, um, but, you know, we need to start having the conversations and, and we need to start thinking about what that might look like, right? Otherwise we're applying the same sort of cookie cutter approach to everybody. And I don't think that's going to work. From, from your personal experience, if you don't mind my asking, what, what have you uh, experienced or, or seen uh, firsthand that has uh, troubled you the most? I think sometimes it is difficult for people to understand just how exhausting it is to be a woman of color in the academy. And I can't speak for all women of color, and I certainly don't purport to, but I do. I am tired all the time. And I don't think that people who don't share my experiences have an appreciation for the kind of mental and physical wear and tear that can happen um, when you're trying to exist in this space that was, let's be real, not created for you um, and not necessarily set up to ensure that you succeed, right? Mm. Um, so I always feel like I am fighting against the tide in a lot of ways. I do think, again, that I'm lucky and that I, I've landed at um, a department that's incredibly supportive, but, you know, like my department can't fix the whole academy. Um, right. <laughs> they can't fix my field, right? It'd be great if they could. But they can't, right? And so, um, so there is that sort of level of, you know, exhaustion. And I don't think that people understand, like, what it can, like, again, the sort of wear and tear that comes along with that. I personally didn't understand the wear and tear that comes along with it. I remember way back when I first started uh, grad school, I had a professor, Dwight Hopkins, at the University of Chicago, who, who told me that being a person of color in the academy is it, it causes a kind of spiritual wear and tear. And so like, I was, I, you know, I was a young graduate student. I was like, man, whatever, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna do this, I got this, you know? And I was just so thirsty to prove myself that I was like, oh yeah, whatever. And now, like all these years later, I'm like, oh man, Dr. Hopkins was so right about that. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, I think, and, and frankly, like, I didn't know why I was so tired until I sat down and thought about it, right? And I was like, oh, yeah, that's probably why you're so tired all the time. It's because you deal with nonsense that, frankly, you shouldn't have to deal with. Um, and, you know, when you're trying to 
tackle everything else that you have to do. And then on top of that, you're dealing with nonsense. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. you're going to get tired. Well, we are perhaps at a cultural moment where your voice as a, as a woman of color maybe heard more at this moment than, than is typical. don't know um i would hope so i you know that question sort of you know, it sends a kind of like uh i have alarm bells sort of ringing in my head right not to not to um you know indict you or anything mm-hmm. like that but i think yeah i don't know how i feel honestly um there's a part of me that's like but the fact that, you know, people are now like, hey, maybe we should listen to women of color is like that to me is problematic in and of itself. Right? Like, yeah. Um, so now you want to listen to women of color? All right. Um, okay. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't endorsing that attitude, mind you. I no, was, no, I of was course not. Of course commenting not. on this place where we are that perhaps. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and I'm always you might find I'm, more attending to, to you. This is true, but then again, I'm always I'm also worried about you know a kind of backlash too, right? Because there's always this element of, well, you know, we're only listening to her because she's a woman of color, right? And and you know we're in this cultural moment, and so, so I honestly I have such ambivalence about this. Um, that is not to say that I don't think we should listen to women of color or or people of color or, you know, uh, LGBTQ friends, right? Like, I don't think that, that this is, like, I, of course we should. We should have been doing this all along, right? Like, why haven't we? Um, but it is a kind of, I do, I'm, you know, it's like I'm feeling kind of ambivalent about it. And I also, and maybe I will sound incredibly cynical and for that i apologize i also am wary um in that i i exist in a space meaning academia that often makes gestures towards diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. i mean Academia uses the term diversity so much that I have no idea what it means anymore. We do make gestures towards diversity and inclusion, but when it comes to putting in place concrete policies or when it comes to putting, you know, putting money where our mouths are, I have seen universities sort of back off of that. And so I I don't know. Yeah, I, I, there's this kind of wariness that I feel, um, and a kind of, you know, like, uh, are we really listening to, to the people that we should be listening to in this moment? Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I remember when the protests for George Floyd first started, there were some, you know, there were some colleges that put out statements that, I thought were really meaningful, you know, that actually said things like anti-blackness, state-sponsored violence, right? Police brutality. So, but, you know, really like naming the problem. 
And then there were some that were really anodyne and making these, again, gestures towards diversity and inclusion. And I remember thinking, like, what do I what do we do with that? Um, so for me, and may, and this may just be me, like for me, I really want to see colleges like spending money on on particularly in this moment. Um, on black scholars, like I really want you to spend money on black scholars. I really want you to think about what sort of exhaustion it takes for um, a black scholar to be, let's say, on the tenure track in this circumstance, in these circumstances, right? Um, and that needs to be in your TMP guidelines. I mean, it sounds like you're, you mentioned a, a moment ago about fear of backlash for speaking and sounds like that in itself is part of the exhaustion that you're feeling. Yeah. And again, this, this is, is, is different for everybody. Um, but I, again, landed in a good place. Um, I feel very secure in terms of, you know, if, if I'm going to stand up, uh, for equity or if I'm going to stand up, um, and say something, I think, you know, I, I think that my department is going to have my back. Um, and I think my college is going to have my back on that front. So I feel okay about that. Um, but I know that is not the case for a lot of people. Right. And so again, right, I, I think that we cannot put the, the onus of anti-racist work or, you know, any kind of social justice work on you know, disproportionately on people of color, right? Or on women yeah. or, you know, on LGBTQ folks, right? Like we can't do that because it's not always safe for them to do this kind of work or to speak out, right? And so we need to also take that into account. Or fair. I mean, like you say, you're, you're, you're exhausted enough, it sounds like with the work that you do without having this additional burden. Right. Right. And I'm not, you know, like I'm not even a public scholar, right? Like I don't even do that, um, that much. And so like, I, I can only imagine what, you know, what somebody like, so for example, Anthea Butler talks about being a public scholar, right. And, and, and some of the stuff that some of the crap that gets thrown her way when she, you know, when she puts out a new piece or something like that. I can only imagine the kind of exhaustion that must cause like, so yeah, um, these are all really real things. And, and one of the, the sort of training, <laughs> training mechanisms of grad school is like, grad school sort of trains you to ignore the exhaustion, right? Like it trains you to just keep working, like just keep producing. And, uh, I think I'm kind of done with that. <laughs> Maybe that's just where I'm at now. I, I just, I, yeah, I'm not, I, I don't want to buy into that narrative anymore. And so I think that, you know, we need to start thinking of scholars as humans primarily. And, and that means understanding that they're not just these sort of brains, right, that are abstracted from their bodies somehow or abstracted from experience somehow. Um, and so we should be thinking about how they experience the world and what that means for scholarship in general for, for the humanities or for the work that we are asking them to do. From your own 
individual perspective. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and take the obvious answer off the table. So we're not going to talk about tenure. But as you look ahead in your career, what are you? What are your goals? What are you looking forward to most, or what would you see as important? Again, let's let's go ahead and take tenure off the table because that's that's probably the obvious answer. So short term, I'm really looking forward to getting this monograph out um, because it's a fun project. Um, it's a project that I've thought about a lot. It's a project that I think will be interesting. It's a project that I think will push the conversation forward. I don't know like how it'll be received. It may, maybe the conversation may not be pushed forward in a way that is beneficial to me. <laughs> um, but you know, I think it's it's an interesting project, and it will it will make people think. And so I'm excited to get it out. I think in the long term, like for me personally, I still feel um, you know kind of new at this, right? Um, I still feel like I'm sort of, you know, faking it till I make it. Uh, you know, how do I pull this class together? You know, how do I how do I do this or how do I do that? So I'm really looking forward to acquiring a comfort with with the role. Um, I don't know when that will come. I don't know how that comes even. I don't know if you just, you know, you get practice at being an academic. But I would. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Sounds good. You're Sounds laughing. Good. <laughs> well, I'm also, uh, as you say, faking it till you make it. You know, the, the, I have to say the thought crossed my mind, is, you know, do the, do the folks that you're looking at that you think of as comfortable, are they truly comfortable if they just learned yeah, how know, to look right? comfortable? <laughs> yeah, it's funny right? because the people that I admire, sometimes they will tell me that they have this thing too where they feel like they're faking it until they make it. And I'm kind of like, if you feel that way, is there a point where any of us think that like, yeah, we've made it. Maybe the, maybe the most that I can hope for is, is the sort of comfort with the notion that I will never feel as though I've made it. Right? Like, <laughs> kind of meta comfort. Just, that's right. Just accept it. Let it go. <laughs> yeah, it is amazing. Um, you know, I, because I, it's like legends, like people who are legendary in my field apparently had this thing, uh, you know, what we would call, I guess, imposter syndrome. And, and every time somebody tells me a story, I'm just kind of like, but if they felt that way, <laughs> What hope is there for the rest of us? <laughs> but you, know, you oh, take do. it one day at a time. And I do try to keep reminding myself, right? Like, I do love the job. Like, I love the research and, and I love the teaching. And so, you know, apart from whatever pressures I feel, you know, for, on the tenure track or whatever exhaustion that comes along with being, you know, a woman of color in this space, there, there's a reason I chose this. Uh, I could have gone to law school. I almost did. You know, I almost paid the seat deposit. So I, I come back to that. And then the other, the other piece of advice that I got when I was just starting out, which I always take with me wherever I go, is you always give yourself permission to walk away, right? If if something is not serving you in some way, if you're not getting something out of this, like if it's just endless drudgery, 
then you give yourself permission to walk away. So that's where I'm at. Um, so I may not ever acquire a comfort with it. Right. But I do know, and I've always known ever since I started that, you know, I, I would be okay if I walked away from this. Yeah. I'm glad you love it enough though to still be here. What was that? I said, I'm glad you love it enough to still be here. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. You got to do a check though. Right. Like it's not just like, you can't just wake up and like passively say, I love the job. I love the job. You have to do like, I do a check, a gut check every year where I'm like, right, is this still something that you want to do with your life, Shaylee? Because if it's not like you could, I don't know, be a rice farmer or something. Right. So yeah, I do. I do have an active like conversation with myself. I know that sounds weird, but I promise it's not weird. But because you do, right? Because again, you work hard. Um, there are a lot of things that are still problematic. There are a lot of things in the academy that still need to be fixed. Um, you know, there are a lot of places in the academy that are incredibly toxic. And those are all real things that, that you're going to experience. Um, so there has to be something that you're getting out of it. And if there's not, then you have to give yourself permission to just, just walk away. Well, Shaylee, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate you sharing. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for uh, for giving me the opportunity to talk about these things. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this episode. I'm your host, Darby Orcutt. Be sure to subscribe to Momentum HSS on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you may listen to your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and share it with a friend. And until next time, keep up the momentum.